Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to another quiet and uneventful edition of Romaniacs. <laughs> it's been confirmed that Vote Leave cheated in the referendum. Theresa May has caved into pretty much all of the European Research Group's wrecking amendments, putting us on the rails towards a hard Brexit. Oh, and Donald Trump trashed the Western Alliance this week. So, pretty much a normal week in what the New York Times called the murder-suicide of the West. <laughs> I'm Andrew Harrison and I miss pretty much all of the Johnson Davis checkers chaos and Trump because, ironically enough, I've been in America myself, but perhaps our two regulars can fill me in on what I've missed. Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, here in a personal capacity as ever. Hello, Naomi. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, so I missed Chaos Week. Uh, you know, what, 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 you know, in terms of uh, you know, Davis and Johnson and the World Cup and Trump, what was the atmosphere like? What was I missing? Uh, the atmosphere on the march itself was incredible. Mm. Easily the best march I've ever been on. And huh. boy, have I done a lot of marches. <laughs> um, I, were, I marched in the women's column mm-hmm. uh, that left from outside the BBC quite early. so a bit earlier than the, the, the other uh, march. And we sort of mess up with them halfway down. Um, and it, it had this real fast festival atmosphere. And there was music. And what was so amazing about it was that there were people of all ages... So, the, you know, there were babies, there were young children, there were teenagers, there were people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there were able-bodied people, there were disabled people, there were trans people, there were white, black, everybody was there. And it, it just felt incredible. And, of course, it was huge as well. Um, there were 250,000 people. Um, and I'm, I think until Remain marches start to look like those marches, we're not yet winning. So what we should do is... You the should contrast say, was, was really stark between the march that we'd been on a couple of weeks before. Oh, until, oh really? Yeah. yeah. So we need to say it's a Trump march and then at the last minute when everybody said, <laughs> like, actually, it's a Remain march, but we've got you here. <laughs> well, what was really encouraging, and when you look at the, the news coverage of the signs, was how many of them were both anti-Brexit yeah. as well as anti-Trump. Yeah. Mm. I noticed as well, I mean, the, the kind of... As usual, I'm out of the country when England are doing well in the World Cup. By England getting knocked out, do you think we knock, knock, we dodged a petty nationalist bullet there? Because a lot of people were quite frightened about a potential Brexit bounce if England won the I World mean, Cup. I mean, I probably fall down on the side of no in answering that question um, because I think football is an area where the culture battle for what Englishness is can be fought um, you know and our success in that tournament was literally built on immigration yeah. um, you know it was I think the least white team we've all, all white team we've ever had um, and you know so many of the England squad are non-white or from non-English heritage and you know the captain and golden boot winner himself is is you know has an Irish dad and if he's got any sense he's probably got an Irish passport probably, yeah quite right yeah <laughs> uh, well why is he not playing for Ireland he should do I, I, I would advise him also with us is Ian Dunt editor of politics.co.uk and a man who understands what happens when a supervillain becomes president hello Ian <laughs> <laughs> Did you Hello. go and march against President Lex Luthor? Uh, uh, I did not. Car? No, I did not. I did not. I was working. Ah, right. Luthor is a much classier guy than Trump, isn't he? He actually yeah. gets stuff done. So there was... So, look, I mean, for anyone that isn't a complete... No, this is <laughs> first. Uh, Lex Luthor was uh, president in DC Comics for a while and actually was a much nicer president than Trump has turned out to be. So even in the fictional world of superheroes, <laughs> when a supervillain becomes president, he does a lot better than the current president. Yeah. Our own Dorian Linsky went to the Trump protest and his sign said, protest Trump because virtue signalling. <laughs> Which I was quite impressed by. <laughs> so there were a lot of criticisms of the march along the lines of, you know, it's all middle class students and the Trump balloon money should have been gone to food banks and Trump didn't even see it. But it's, it's not actually for him, is it? It's not for his mm. eyes. It's for it's for our eyes to kind of. So it might be us. partly for the world's eyes and it's partly for America's eyes. But I, I, I kind of dislike this idea that marches and demos always have to have a function. So people always have that thing where they go, like, not even the pole, you know, stuff against the poll tax, not even the stuff against Iraq actually leads to something. But it's not always that you're looking for a direct line of causation. It makes people feel less alone. It helps them organise. It gives them a sense of political community around what they do. And that is a good in and of itself. Like marching is good as an end rather than as a means. And it sounds to me like this, that's exactly how people were feeling last Friday. 
Well, I was amongst actual Americans, and they were just saying, can you show me pictures of London? Show me what your friends are doing. They were really kind mm. of encouraged by it. It's like, we feel like it's not just us who are stuck with this nightmare. You're, you know... And, and all of the narrative around it was, we love America, and we love Americans. Yeah. It's just this idiot we hate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got there was a couple of people that sort of on the right that brought up that idea of like there's a new thing of anti-Americanism or whatever, and I sort of thought like I actually can't ever remember there being so little. I remember when I was marching against Iraq, yeah. I thought that there was quite a lot of anti-Americanism there, and, and if I'm completely honest, I think I probably dabbled. I would have been sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, yeah. you know, and I, I probably dabbled in it a little bit. I suddenly felt some of it myself. I don't see any of that right now. And in fact, I sort of see that he, he looks like this kind of aberration of the American personality. The most of the time when you go to America, people are very friendly and, and quite polite, you know, despite the fact yeah. that politics comes from a different place and all the weird stuff with the guns and all these other bits. They yeah. always seem polite and chatty and pleasant. And he just looks like this monstrous barbarian that seems completely disconnected from other ideas about America. There's a very re- revealing thing. We just reviewed the um, the Sasha Baron Cohen thing, mm. Who is America, on Big Mouth, our companion podcast, also available on your local podcast platform and there's a, a very revealing bit in it where he goes in one of his characters he goes to dinner with a kind of Trump supporting couple and he just baits and goads them with these stupid ideas that like he's let his daughter menstruate on the flag and his, his wife's in a relationship with the dolphin and the, and the husband the husband is kind of getting more and more agitated and this tr- Trump Republican woman says to him honey don't rush to judgment don't, you know, oh, these wow. are supposed to be the monsters. Wow. And they're, no, no, come on, it's his life. You know, there's <laughs> this idea that, like, the, this this kind of Morningstar cartoon idea that America's full of, you know, uh, Uncle Sam's, you know, waving missiles in there is just an absurdity, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, we can talk about this all day. We need to meet our fantastic guest. David Allen Green is a lawyer and the blogger, otherwise known as Jack of Kent. He writes on the law for the Financial Times and was the New Statesman's legal correspondent. And he's the author of Brexit, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome to Remain Next, David. How are you doing? Hiya. Can you sit more closely to the mic, please? Because you sound like you're on a, 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 a far mountain, high on a hill in the lonely goat herd. Yeah, I'm just getting used to being in this basement in Soho. Yeah. Uh, not what I expected to happen in basements in Soho. But well, this is the most I, boring basement in Soho. It's the least see. interesting one. You should sit when we have various members of the House of Lords descending into a basement in Soho. Yeah. We made our excuses and left. So we're recording on Wednesday night right after Theresa May's customs union vote squeaked past after she came to the Brexit jihadis again and people are saying we're now on target for the no deal that Rhys Moggs obviously craves what's your your sense of where it's at now where do you think it's heading uh it's a complicated situation so the best we can do is sort of work from presumptions and what would happen unless something else happens uh starting point is that the UK leaves the European Union by automatic operation of law Mm -hmm. in March next year that's what's going to happen unless something changes. Well, is there something so far which looks as if that's going to change? Well, obviously, there's a lot of people on Twitter and people who listen to this podcast who very much would like something to happen. and But that hasn't yet converted into uh, p- potential political action, it seems to me. It hasn't mm. got far enough up yeah. the political tree. And so we're heading towards a exit in March. What's the next most probable thing? Well, the one thing you can sense if you if you look back over the last two years is that at each and every point, the UK government has taken the path of least resistance. Hmm. It hasn't done a great deal which involves any effort. Uh, and there are two possible outcomes which come which come from this approach, it seems to me. One is for us to leave the European Union with a hard Brexit. I mean, the hardest no deal at all. Mm. because that actually doesn't involve any effort. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the whole idea that somebody's going to deliver Brexit in the same way you deliver a pizza, it really doesn't make any sense. It's just going to happen. Nobody can yeah. claim credit because it's a logical legal consequence of the Article 50 notification. That's going to happen. It's more like an unwanted pregnancy than a Brexit, than a, a pizza, rather. It's kind of just sort of it turns up, you know, unless you make a real steps to do something about it. I'm trying to be positive. I'm comparing it with pizza. Uh, the, the other... F- path of least resistance is the other thing the UK has done a lot of, which is just giving in to whatever the EU want. Mm-hmm. Basically, in taking back control, we are doing a Brexit which is more or less on the terms prescribed by the European Union. The withdrawal agreement, which uh, you can see, it's in public domain, is about 80% done. It's If you click into it, you'll see it's texts in different colours, 
ghastly green, which means it really, really, really buggers up your, your printer when you're printing it off. <laughs> uh, it's about 80% there. The real problem is the long stop, the backstop agreement mm-hmm. for Northern Ireland. And the thing about the white paper, it seems to me, is that a lot of people are engaging with the issues raised by the white paper, but a lot of this doesn't really matter until the final relationship arrangement in which follows uh, the transition arrangement. It's for what happens after December 2020. Mm. The only thing which needs urgent attention, engagement, is the whether the UK can bring itself to agree the backstop provisions. And although a lot of people have saying, oh, the white paper's been discredited and it's dead in the water or whatever, it's, it still seems to me that the most likely outcome is the government's going to get enough cover to either sign the withdrawal agreement as it currently is, or there might be some mild compromise from Brussels to change the terms of the withdrawal agreement. Mm. And then the can is effectively kicked over the line of next March. And right. we have to then start work, working towards the what happens after the transition arrangement. And this is one issue which I think is really underappreciated at the moment, is that so many Remainers especially are looking for a way, any way, to stop Brexit happening by next March. Yeah. It's almost like it's the same mistake in reverse, which the Leavers made by just, oh, we just want to win the referendum. We're not thinking about anything afterwards. Right. It may well be that the association agreement, which ends up between the UK and EU, lasts even longer than UK's membership of the EU. It may well be something which frames our relationship for generations. And it seems to me that's what we should be aiming at rather than trying to stop Brexit by next March. OK, well, that's, I mean, that's one that hasn't popped up too often on the podcast, is it? We could probably get an entire show out of that one. <laughs> We're going to be talking to David throughout the show as we try to unscramble this week's Brexit omelette. That's checkers, more voices added to mm-hmm. uh, the, the call for a people's vote, including the formidable Justin Greening, the fallout from Donald Trump's drive-by shouting and much more. <laughs> we'll also be considering whether this whole mess is really about Brexit at all anymore. Earlier this week, Paul Mason, someone we sometimes take with a pinch of salt, gave a disturbing warning that once the xenophobic toe-rag Tommy Robinson is released from jail, where he so richly deserves to be, there will be millions of dollars of Trump money waiting to create a functioning alt-right in Britain with Robinson as its figurehead. Do we need to prepare for active street fascism on a scale we've not seen since the 1930s? All of these cheery matters after these messages from Naomi. Everyone hates Mondays, but our Patreon backers at least have a reason to look forward to the start of the week. A brand new series of exclusive columns from our panel looking at all aspects of Brexit that we can't fit into the show. This week, Patreon supporters got our own Roz Taylor on the nightmare that is the Canada option and the even worse nightmare that is Liam Fox's thoughts on that matter. Ian, Roz, Alex Dorian and I will be all up in your inbox every Monday if you become a Romaniac supporter on Patreon. And of course, you'll also get those splendid Romaniac t-shirts, sturdy Romaniacs mugs and fashion-forward Romaniacs tote bags too. The best way to troll Brexiters on the beach this summer. Go to patreon.com and search Romaniacs to find out more. And don't forget, you'll also get discounts and early bird notifications on tickets for our live shows too. The next one is on Wednesday the 12th of September at the Leicester Square Theatre in London and it's very near to selling out. So help us to own the Ramon in these troubled times. Go to patreon.com and search Romaniacs. Okay, take a deep breath and insert your snorkel because it's going to be a murky one. Let's dive into the deep end of this week's Brexit news. First up, checks it. Out goes the checkers formula, and in comes a checkered future. As a mixture of ARG sabotage, labour leave connivance and dirty tricks over vote pairing, hands Theresa May a Pyrrhic parliamentary victory on the customs bill. May's proposals were already in such a bad state that she was reduced to saying the checkers plan is not dead, which is a pretty reliable indication that the checkers plan is dead. By Tuesday night, the ERG had successfully prevented the UK joining a customs union. The government backed all of their amendments and the whips threatened Tory rebels with an instant general election. Another stillborn remain rebellion. So, Ian, is the Chequers plan dead? That is currently unclear. Um, <laughs> it is both dead and not dead. It is a Schrodinger. I think it's quite Schrodinger at the moment. So, um, Theresa May is now going to go around apparently to the Irish border. She's touting around this plan that she has. Now, earlier this week, she whipped her own MPs essentially to oppose the plan that she was putting forward in Thursday last week and that I had to spend three hours of my fucking life reading. (laughs) I didn't do that for nothing, Theresa. So don't do that and then whip your MPs to oppose it. And then definitely don't say that's the same thing. Then yesterday we get 
I mean, like the sort of tragicomic spectacle of a Nicky Morgan amendment, ostensibly to firm up the strategy that the government is pursuing, admittedly with a customs union backstop on the side, which is then opposed by the government. The government is essentially whipping MPs to oppose its own strategy. It is now, it is quite far along the road of essentially outlawing the Brexit strategy that it is following. And yet, they still seem to think that they can smidgen their way through. So I think when you get to the heart of what Downing Street is trying to do, it clearly believes that the amendments that were passed are not fatal to the way Mm -hmm. that Chequers operates and that it can just sort of take the hits, take the hits, take the hits. But, you know, in a couple of weeks when it's all calmed down and it's back to Brussels again and blah, 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 the Chequers plan will still be there in some kind of form that is workable. Do you think, I mean, you put out an exceptionally bleak tweet this week saying, Guys, I think we're on the road to the hard Brexit now. I never believed it before, but I think we are. Yeah, so I mean, that's so. if you look at sort of the two final options that David just outlined before, I've usually been of the persuasion of the, the, the final one, that they would just find some kind of form of words to get them over the line, was pretty much always going to be the case. I mean, everyone wants it ultimately when you get down to it. Even on the EU side, look at someone like Michel Barnier, just on a personal level. He doesn't want to just come back saying, well, you know what, actually, I couldn't make it work. And the whole thing's falling apart in this massive shit show. Mm-hmm. What I think complicated that is, to me, the most important amendment wasn't the one on VAT, wasn't the one on reciprocity of customs. It was the one on Ireland. Because it essentially outlawed mm-hmm. something that you... And David, you're going to... I think you can correct me on this because on the legal stuff, you're going to kick the shits out of me. But, like, it seems to me that the withdrawal bit is a legal document with the EU. The future relationship stuff is the broad political stuff that we deal with later and we can punt that over. Now, that means that you do have to sign a treaty which, for some period of time, is going to say that there is a customs border in the Irish Sea, that there's some kind of distinction there. Yeah. Then you bring around your political stuff on the back end. You plug that in and go, well, actually, we're fully in the customs union, regulatory alignment, blah, 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 so there won't be a border. But at the point that you sign that treaty, there would be. Now, we've got an amendment now in the customs bill saying that it's illegal to pursue that strategy. And that suddenly, to me, I, I mean, I, I know that it, it falls back, that ultimately, if you sign the treaty, that would overrule the, the law that's been passed through the amendment in the customs bill. Sorry to make this all quite so horrifically complicated. But ultimately, the spectacle of the government passing a law against the things that it would have to do in order to sign a deal kind of pushed me from the 49% chance of no deal into the 51% chance of no deal sort of mm. thing, going, you know what, now, more likely than not, I think we're going towards no deal or no Brexit. Naomi, um, the... State of it, David. I will come back to you on this oh, in a minute, no. but I want to know well, me. Not to speak. The st- <laughs> yeah. Just to sit here and nod and listen to you in this hot basement. In yes. this hot basement. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm in a yeah. basement in Soho for. Know yeah. <laughs> me. The, the the nature of the debate among the Tories this week was so acrimonious, so yeah. bitter, so cruel, so mean, and the amendments were so entirely spiteful. Mm. Is there any way back for them? On this. I mean, it's, I do not remember in my 50 years open Tory civil war like this. Yeah, I mean, the full horror of the Tory civil war is now being exposed um, and the hardline Brexiteers are winning it at the moment. Um, and the government's authority and power isn't so much ebbing away as full floodwater levels of, of flowing away from them. They're scraping through key votes, um, losing others. Um, they, they lost a couple uh, on Tuesday evening, uh, a surprise defeat uh, in particular on the Medicines Agency motion. Mm. Um, and they've had Remainer Minister uh, resign, Guto Beb, um, as well. So, you know, growing weaker every day as a government um, and going into recess, I think, with the kind of the stench of death around them. Uh, and then on top of all of that, uh, and what we haven't yet mentioned is um, the vote leave criminal investigation that the Electoral wow. Commission has now passed on to the police. Um, and that implicates two very senior advisers who currently work for the Prime Minister in Number 10. Um, so liars and cheats in the very heart of Downing Street who may yet face charges of fraud. We can come on to the, the vote. summer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we'll come on to the vote leave stuff in, in, in a minute. But what, what, something that popped up this morning on Wednesday was Anna Subri talking on Radio 4 about a government of national mm. unity, notably without the Labour front front bench what do we think of that is this kind of like is this midweek kite flying and uh, you know fantasy football and it, to drive away the the misery of reality or is there any anything likely in that do we think? Well, we've heard sort of uh, bits and bobs of it over the last couple of weeks from various people. When you look at the um, 
interventions that were made post checkers by uh, Anna Subri, uh, by Chukka Amuna, and by Ali McGovern, mm. their speeches were almost identical and yeah. both sort of using that kind of phrasing. And then Mike Gapes used the um, progress platform to, to tweet something very That's similar about a unity national government. So uh, I think that there probably are lots of those sorts of conversations happening. Um, do I think that that is something that is broadly beneficial for helping us as Remainers or as Romaniacs? Not so sure. Um, but yeah, I think I think it prob- there probably is more organisation to it than a few sort of throwaway comments by MPs being interviewed by politicians. I mean, it seems very unlikely to me, but it, it made me very excited, and I started putting together my list, my fantasy football <laughs> list. And I did it like almost as soon as I, I read. Who's on your list? So, look, I had a weird... So, OK, there's one thing to really point out, which is that I actually did put Keir Starmer as Brexit secretary. Funnily enough, even in my fantasy put-them-all-together uh-huh. world, actually, I did end up with Keir Starmer there. I wanted to have... Um, I, I couldn't help it. Like, I had to make Ken Clark prime minister. I couldn't... Even though, like, I don't <laughs> like the Tory... I mean, I just... I couldn't, I couldn't get past. I was just like, well, he obviously has to be. That just has to be there. David Lammy, I think, was home secretary. I had Sarah Wollaston for health. Um, I did. Sounds brilliant. Yeah, it really does sound very good. Indeed, vote for this. Caroline Lucas, I think I put in justice. Um, That's I had Matt a real doc. His justice, surely. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Anyway, that was a, that was a fun morning for me. That yeah. was going to get to escape to my happy place. But yeah. on, on looking at British political history in, in the sort of medium longer term, this whole idea that the current party structure is somehow permanent. Uh, is, is, is misconceived. Uh, in the 1880s, in, uh, the party system fell apart. In the 1930s, mm. there was a, a national government. There were still candidates in the 1960s standing as national liberals because the Liberal Party split over yeah. that. Mm. There is no inherent reason why we could not have a new cross-party government uh, because it's happened before two or three times in the last 100, 120, 30 years. Mm. What would the policy of that government be? Well, to disappoint you, know, you guys and the listeners to this, the one thing which once Brexit would get through the House of Commons is to discharge the <coughs> mandate, because mm. that is what most MPs were elected on. And that is why your chap, Ken Clark, probably couldn't be Prime Minister of a cross-party mm. government because he's quite open about actually disagreeing with it in principle and mm. will vote against it in principle. Mm-hmm. But other than discharging Brexit some way, somehow, it is difficult to see any Brexit other than a soft one, given the parliamentary arithmetic. If everybody could vote the way they wanted to, you'd get the ERG, you'd get the Labour headbangers, you'd get some of the Corbynistas or in opposition... But the vast majority would support a David Lammy, Dominic Grieve sort of government, which would execute Brexit. You would still have the mandate discharged. You wouldn't be able to reverse it, but they would do it on the softest possible yeah. terms. And I can actually see a parliament. That is what suits the current parliamentary arithmetic. And would solve precisely nothing because it wouldn't shut up the Daily Mail. It wouldn't shut up the Rees-Mogs. You would soft Brexit. And we would still have this this disunity. I just I don't see how we we get around the issue of uh, of of this sort of torn country that we've got that needs to heal. And I think having a proper people's vote with a proper discussion around that, which yeah, you know, is is I, is what we would have to do. I accept it. I'm, I'm more sympathetic towards soft Brexit than you are, but but I ultimately wouldn't mind the look of a new referendum. However. Um, what concerns me most is that I, I completely sign up to David's analysis of the parliamentary arithmetic. The, the political behaviour does not seem to reflect it. Mm-hmm. So, like, over the last... Over this week, Theresa May has the votes, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, to, 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 to stare down the ERG. The ERG tried this stuff. They don't have the numbers to use against them. She can bring enough Tories with her with enough Labour votes to get this kind of stuff through. And yet... Suddenly, because I've been thinking about it in terms of parliamentary numbers the whole time, suddenly I thought, but it, but it clearly isn't just parliamentary numbers. It, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, another kind of pressure that they're exerting on her, the pressure of sort of the theatre of humiliation, yes. you know, of losing that chunk of her party and having to rely mm-hmm. wholesale on Labour, even though actually, as it turned out yesterday, she did rely on Labour MPs, but Labour mm-hmm. leavers rather than the other side. And, and yeah. to absent uh, Liberal Democrats and the yeah. Former, <laughs> yeah. a former Liberal Democrat leader and a current Liberal Democrat do, leader. Do you have any opinions on that, Naomi, yes. at all? Like- <laughs> 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 Big fan. 
fan. Well, I mean, sticking with that, that question of the people, so Justin Greening has proposed a novel tripartite mm. one, three options. Mm. Mm. Checkers. Yeah, Checkers staying in the EU or leave with no deal. Well, referendums are really part of the problem. They're not part of the solution to any of this. But, if I may devil's yeah. advocate you, neither is anything else. Parliament is failing. The parties are failing. Yeah. The parties are failing. So this is a problem that has been caused by a referendum. Surely only a therapeutic final dose of referendum of direct democracy can cure it. There was a YouGov poll out um, just before we recorded this podcast uh, putting Justine Greening's um, approach to the test. So it's a preferential voting system and you get the three options. And what's really interesting about that is, of course, that Remain wins because the... uh, Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So the, the, the things that are interesting about it is that you've got, you know, a good chunk of people voting Remain. You've got a small chunk of people voting leave with some kind of deal and then you've got about 33% of leavers saying no just leave no deal now that's terrifying that amongst the leavers the hard-nosed leavers outnumber the soft leavers Mm. two to one but the interesting thing is that all of the preferences, the second preferences of the 17% of, of leavers that want a deal transfer to remain Oh, so it splits the leave camp, not the remain camp. That and, you've just, and you've just articulated the objection that would be raised after that vote, which is they just split our vote. It yeah, was a yeah, cheat. Yeah, they split yeah. our vote. But, but, but everybody was sort of saying, oh, no, no, Justine Greening's thing is ridiculous because it splits the remain camp. It doesn't. It, it splits the leave camp. Yeah. There was a really interesting... Um uh, article by William Hague in The Telegraph this week, which is not a sentence what? that I say very often. Yeah, And he was, I, I mean, it was basically a whole set of arguments against the referendum, um, most of which I didn't agree with, but I thought there was one really interesting point there where he sort of said, look, if you put no deal on that ballot, but whether it's preferential or, or whatever... What does that mean if people vote for it? Does that mean you can't even sign like an aviation treaty? You know what I mean? Like, or would it be? And suddenly you think like, well, no, that's that is as as an option to put on a ballot paper. That's very very hard to figure out how that operates. And yet, yeah. the, of course, the accusation is if you don't put it down there, you would be denying pe- the the yeah. many people, as you say, it's the majority of, of many Leave supporters, the right to go for their preferred option. So th- there's lots and lots of really quite murky technicalities on this thing that you do have to get past. It's and all- the problem with a referendum is it would require, almost certainly, although there are some people who say otherwise, it would almost certainly require primary legislation. Hmm. The last referendum act took seven months from beginning to end to go through. Uh, it then took a further five months to get all the statutory instruments out on spending limits and on voter registration things. Nobody would say that those statutory instruments were good. Or very good. <laughs> and indeed, you've just alluded to uh, the vote leave stuff. Yes, that was because the statutory instruments weren't terribly good for, for, mm. for that. It was very easy to circumvent it. They weren't easily enforceable. So you're, if we are to have a referendum before next March, we are going to have to pass primary legislation. We're going to have to work out on the, what the question is, what the options are, work out what the deal is which we are actually agreeing to or not agreeing to, and get all the statutory instruments in place so that a, a, a vote could be taken in good time before the 29th of March. I'm afraid that is incredibly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It's magical thinking, and it's magical thinking akin to the sort of magical thinking which leavers have. I completely agree, and I think that if you're going to have um, either a general election on how this works out or a referendum you need to ask for an extension of time from the EU. And I, I do think, yes. from, the, from the future assets that I have in Europe, one of the few reasons that the EU would grant a time extension would be for some kind of democratic process yes. to take place yeah. to validate the final thing. I don't think they'd grant one to go back to the negotiating table or any of that stuff, but for an election or for a referendum, I think that's the kind of context in which they would grant it. Yes. Moving on. I agree with Ian on that. We all agree with Ian at all times. That is so no, false. <laughs> That really isn't the case. And on comics, he really has some bizarre opinions. He does. Moving on, David uh, just alluded to this. To the surprise of nobody, the Electoral Commission found that Vote Leave cheated in the referendum by breaking its £7 million spending limit. The hapless fashion student behind front organisation Believe has been fined £20,000 and referred to the police, along with Vote Leave official David Hossel. And, of course, Vote Leave itself dismissed the whole thing as politically motivated. Naomi, is this going to make any difference? Because there was the astonishing situation of how Vote Leave were somehow able to get their story out first. 
they um, yeah, well, they spiked the Electoral Commission's uh, yeah. press release, um, which, you know, won't have made the Electoral Commission want to be you know, any more uh, lenient towards them. Um, will it make a... Right, OK, so a few... Let's break down that question. Um, what 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 has now happened is that the Electoral Commission have um, suggested... Well, have, have passed on uh, to the police what they consider to be acts, multiple acts of fraud against certain individuals. Hmm. So what will change for those individuals is that they are going to face criminal potentially criminal prosecution for multiple charges of fraud. So there are personal implications for those people. There's, there remains in the country a plague on all your houses attitude. Um, you know, people have so little trust in politics, politicians and the political system that they kind of expect you all to be on the make anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it has any particular boon to Remainers yeah. that, that, you know, they are somehow the, the you know, the, the, the bastions of purity um, uh, and, and have abided by all the rules all of the times. Everyone just expected people to be cheating and lo and behold, they have. So is this a game changer for the movement? No. What what may yet happen, though, is that yet another legal proceeding might be started to invalidate the 2016 referendum. And and we might we might see some kind of uh, legal challenge on that basis. As luck will have it, we have a lawyer in the Indeed. room right now. David, what are the chances of a legal challenge to the referendum results on the back of this? Zero. <laughs> Can you substantiate that? <laughs> I'm not even going to go down the lawyer's route of saying, oh, it all depends. <laughs> well, it could be 50-50. No, zero. Mm. Uh, and the main reason is because... From a legal perspective, the referendum was non-binding. It was advisory. And so its result really has no mm. standing at law. It's not like uh, an election for an MP or a councillor where you do have a declaration of the result which leads to somebody taking the seat in the council, which can be set aside and the election could be rerun with a candidate either banned yeah. or not banned from it. It wasn't like that. If you squint your eyes and dabble in uh, declaratory relief, you could possibly think, yes, you could get a court saying, making a declaration, but not really. Uh, there is no direct or, in my view, indirect legal route to invalidate. I can't even think what remedy the court would order. And in any case, unless it's based on compelling new evidence... We're woefully out of time because it's three months usually to challenge any public decision. And we're mm. now well over, you know, two years later. So it's not serious law. You will get some very clever lawyers on, on, on Twitter coming out with arguments, but no, zero. Mm. Uh, it is political. Any consequence of what's happening uh, with the Electoral Commission and the police investigations, which I'm certainly not going to comment about because I'm not stupid, uh, the... There's no direct legal route to... It's political. It can change people's opinions. It could make people feel morally or in a normative way that the referendum is somehow invalid. But it's not a question mm. for law. Mm. Well, that... Okay. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, that there is a sort of a bit of a misconception that, that British culture is kind of rooted in a, a sense of fairness and we've exported rules and regulations mm. around the yep. world and the British Standards Institute is sort of upheld as a global leader within mm -hmm. the ISO and cricket and all of that. Actually, I think <laughs> most of it's bollocks. Um, we don't really have that culture and when we test it as a campaign with voters, this sort of sense of fairness, maybe you were wronged, maybe you were duped, maybe they lied... Doesn't, it doesn't really move the needle. Um, mm. So, yeah, so yeah. I, I think in terms of a campaign, I don't think this particularly changes anything, sadly. But my concern from, from, from somebody who tries to be relatively objective, although I fail, uh, <laughs> and is that ultimately neutral on whether the UK stays a member of the EU or not, as long as we're part of a single market in the customs union, I don't actually care about the actual technical legal status mm -hmm. of our membership mm -hmm. or not. I, would, I can imagine... a a full association agreement I'd be happy with. The problem I have looking at the debate, it's a bit like watching generals trying to fight the war again. Every, a lot of the Remainers are t busy refighting the referendum. They want the referendum mm. invalidated. Mm. They can't accept mm. it. They want the mandate to magically go mm. away. Mm. Mm. I agree. And what concerns me, and I mentioned this earlier, is... Once March comes and goes, OK, there is a possibility we won't leave next March. 
I accept that. There's three ways it can be avoided, and that's, I've set those three ways out again and again on Twitter and in the Financial Times. But if that doesn't happen, we're out. Mm-hmm. The only way back in is Article 49. Uh, on, on we, and that means we've got to go through an application procedure. Uh, we've got a transition period which currently goes until December 2020. It is likely that that will be the basis of whatever association agreement we have afterwards. And nothing is being done, or very little is being done at the moment, to think about what sort of association agreement we want to have with the European Union. Mm. Mm. And having seen leavers not think about anything other than getting past the referendum vote, they woke up the next day thinking magically the European UK had left the European Union yeah. without realising there was a completely distinct step, which was going through the Article 50 process. I'm just very fearful that a lot of Remainers and people listening to this podcast are making a very similar mistake in trying somehow to avoid Brexit before next March without thinking about what follows. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, we are probably guilty of not thinking that, about that enough on this show, aren't we? I mean, we haven't, you know, because we don't want to think about it. It's such a dismal thought. Yeah, and I can understand that. You want to fight it with everything hmm. you can, but in the medium to longer term, the association agreement is, 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 is where I think more interesting questions are being to be, to be asked. I yeah. guess the thing is that that's just... It's, it sort of feels to me like that's the battle to come. Like the first one is, can it be stopped? Second one is, are there structures at the point that it happens that can minimise the damage of it? That's stuff like transition and whether you send someone yeah. or yeah. And then failing all of that stuff, then you go into the warfare of exactly, of exactly this bit. But it's just like... I, I almost I feel like I don't have like the emotional and mental space to deal with that at the same time as essentially the rear guard yeah. defence that is taking place right now. If I thought that the rear guard defence had no hope, I would be right into the place. But actually, mm-hmm. I, I think there is hope there. And, and while there is, that's the battle then. And then as soon as it turns around, we go to the next one. I have to say, well, though I'm not great at that because I get depressed when things go wrong. We were sat here with the guy from Open Britain when the Greaves Amendment went down. What was amazing was Sam McGregor was I just looked at him and he just flicked from disappointment in about three seconds to, right, man, what's the next fight? And we go, yeah, and I thought, yeah. oh, Christ alive. That's <laughs> like proper campaigning material right there. Um, I'd take longer to get over it, but still you'd have it. And then you reassess, and then you go for that fight. And I think that's, that's the one that we'll have if we fail. Mm-hmm. OK, let's have an even more depressing subject. Trump week. <laughs> <clears throat> Brought even more chaos than we expected, with the president trashing May's prime ministership and promoting Boris Johnson as a potential PM, then describing the European Union as a foe and suggesting that May might sue the European Union. Does anybody remember the jerky boys? Sue you, sue everybody. It was, by any measure, a mortifying shit show, And it also brought new lows for the British media. With neo-Nazi health hazard Steve Bannon touring the studios of Good Morning Britain and LBC as if he was some sort of legitimate political commentator, and fine wine drinker Piers Morgan performing his salacious crumb routine aboard what we must now refer to as Turd Force One. <laughs> Meanwhile, the day after the Trump protest in London, some 5,000 supporters of Stephen Yaxley Lennon, the EDL thug who calls himself Tommy Robinson, assembled in Trafalgar Square for their second mini-riot in a month. They assaulted a trade unionist in, a trade unionist in what appears to be a targeted attack. Paul Mason not somebody we readily agree with, tweeted, when Robertson gets out of jail, mega dollars from the US right will try to boost a real Trumpoid alt-right movement. Get ready. So we're wondering, is it really about Brexit anymore? Or are we in the middle of a far-right resurgence, the like of which we haven't seen since the 1930s? Naomi, am I correct to be personally terrified? It feels like things have lurched very badly just in the past seven days alone. Well, I think the portrayal of a soft, hard Brexit, as the Chequers deal mm-hmm. certainly is, mm-hmm. as a betrayal of Brexit, is certainly a political lurch to the right. But in terms of thugs on the streets having the confidence to show themselves, yes, we should be fucking terrified about it, mm-hmm. and it is shocking, but it's not new. Mm-hmm. Um, we should have been fucking terrified for decades, frankly. We, you know, you, uh, uh, David just talked about, you know, the the the, the Liberals still running candidates and, and winning things long after the Liberal Democrat Party had uh, been formed. But we had the BNP mm-hmm. winning elections ten years ago, European elections and local elections. They were winning those ten years ago. Um, the anti-extremism group Hope Not Hate will tell you that this is absolutely nothing new. Um, the government's anti-terrorism slash extremism um, prevent strategy um, released March uh, in March this year numbers that showed that 6,000 people referred to them. Um, of those, a third were from far-right groups, mm. um, and that's up from a quarter. And I just think that centrist politicians have been too complacent for far too long. Um, you know, if you if you support 
fiscal conservatism and take a laissez-faire approach to integration that has been going along for far too long, then Brexit will become a kind of symptom of, of, a, of that broader malaise. A lack of social mobility and growing inequality creates these like ghettos of despair where there is no hope for these people and then they lash out. And it's the exact same risk in Northern Ireland where I grew up. When jobs are scarce, young men in particular feel that their status is weakened, you know, they, 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 they don't have that, that, that sense of status and purpose and they are much more easily tempted into taking up arms and blaming their neighbour. And I think, mm. you know, that, that, mm. is, that is what we're talking about. So I'm sorry that you're feeling shocked, but it really isn't new. No, um, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not sadly, thinking that it's new, so. but I am just depressed that it can research in such an obvious way. I, yeah. I agree with that analysis as populism is always there. After people got the vote at the late 19th century, in the 1920s and 30s, a generation afterwards, there was no real answer at the time mm. to populism. Uh, what do you do? The old structures couldn't cope. The old political parties couldn't cope. They had to somehow face it down or adapt. A populism is, is, is always there. It, majoritarianism is always a threat against the individual. That is why, as a liberal, I want to have entrenched... Uh, individual civil liberties and human rights, which are beyond the grasp of any majority government. But as regards the new move towards you know, it being reality stars who are leading that, I remember you know, reading Sinclair Lewis's book, Could That Happen Here? There was a Bob Roberts film not long in about 20, 15, 20 years ago with folksy white-wingers yeah. winning. One day we're going to look back and not be surprised that a reality star... Be- went for political power, like Trump, we'll probably be surprised if it hadn't happened before or hmm. why so few of them had. It is just such an obvious way of connecting with a large audience and a large constituency. Hmm. And those of us who are small L liberals who actually don't want to have individual rights up for grabs by these populists have got to try and work out how do we face this down and defend mm. individual rights. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, the Paul Mason warning might have been a bit sort of blood and thunder, but when he says get ready, mm. what does get ready mean? Does get ready mean... I mean, I, I, you know, mm. I am a, a friends with a guy who knows the trade unionist who was assaulted, mm. and he was saying in very clear terms, we are not going to fix this by hiring more interns to do mm. more social media. Mm. You're not mm. going to fix this with tweets and amusing online mm. videos. Mm. You've got to get people out mm. into communities mm. explaining, and those mean that means that communities are vulnerable to this, which means the kind of working-class communities where, frankly, the likes of us don't really go, we don't live there. Yeah. You've got to get people mm. out there to explain why yeah. this is a clear and present yeah. danger to you yourself. But yeah. we also need to rethink our rhetorical approach because, so, you know, there's a, a bit of a non-argument about whether Trump is clever or not or whether he's a genius or not. The fact, the problem is, is that he and his supporters do not care about facts. They do not care about shame. So shaming them or correcting them and fact-checking them or whatever the phrase is, is, is not working. Yeah. Mm. And so those of us who are small liberals need to rethink how do we engage in these debates mm. on terms which mean that we will prevail. Mm. Uh, and from, at the moment, it's, it yeah. scares me because what do you do when you have a factual, shameless politicians? Yeah. Because they can go places in a democracy where people who care about facts and care about shame can't, can't go. go. Mm. It's an amazing, like, how do you fight for the defeat of the value that you're fighting for if the only way to do it is to give up on the value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, if you take the stuff that's happened with uh, vote leave in the Electoral Commission this week and you look at Trump's press conference, okay, at the same time. Now, Trump's press conference, he wasn't just lying about stuff that mattered. He would, Some of the lies were absurd. Like, there was the one about the, fact, the idea that he was in Scotland the day before the Brexit vote, whereas, in fact, the day I after. literally, I was watching the TV... I mean, that happened in my life and not very long ago. It was like, no, that was the day after. I remember yeah. this happening. I remember this taking place. But to just... And then his machine behind him went into thing, lying on this mm. basic core thing that anyone could see. That's the extent of the lies that he tells. You look at... But, of course, there's no shame to it. Yeah. He doesn't experience it. He can sit there, stand there and say to the CNN guy, I'm not going to let you ask me any questions. You look at the way that Vote Leave were with the Electoral Commission this week. What does it matter if they find against them? If, as Naomi's saying, it's pox on your houses and no one cares. Yeah. That sense of shame okay, yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. And if in all of these things yeah. we lose that sense that shame is something that counts, we are left with very, very few weapons but indeed. But it leads you to the really very, very, very depressing conclusion that they don't understand or care about facts or shame. 
But what they care about is power and violence. That's what they care about. So where do you go then? Do you oh. really want to try and rerun the 1930s? So I don't know about that the violence. I don't, know about the, me as I don't know about the violence part, especially not on the Brexiters sort of side. I don't know. So I mean, look there's at the, the Tommy occasional... Robinson lot, though. The Tommy Robinson lot. Violence is their currency. See, the, see he worries me less, okay? Because him, I, I do feel like even when I was a kid growing up, you did have the BNP, you'd have the National Front, you'd have that stuff around there, you'd have neo Nazi rallies, and you'd have the guys that opposed them. And, and I don't feel that that's any worse. What I think got more severe was where the Nigel Raflage reflection of that, which is the blazer wearing just on the right side of acceptability stuff mm-hmm. the jackboots have a real image problem a branding problem <laughs> and UKIP lower... has had a big surge in the polls this week right because it's, it's, it's essentially a class war within the far right you know where this stuff represents the working class element of the far right and the UKIP stuff represents the sort of lower middle class element mm. of it and that has much greater pickup. Farage has done much better you can even see it in the transcript of him against Bannon talking about the Tommy Robinson stuff where Farage is instinctively opposed to Robinson that bit troubles me more because at the moment that UKIPization took over Downing Street has essentially decided the way that our entire economic and foreign policy arrangements are being dictated that has had much more success and it troubles me more than the thugs and the Nazis I mean look there is a lot of post-colonial racism and xenophobia that you know we simply haven't addressed as a country and we need to forge this much more open and inclusive sense of what it means to be British and when we had the SNP Kirsty Blackman uh, on this podcast and she was talking about how in Scotland they've got a civic nationalism and unfortunately in England we have an ethnic nationalism I think if we need to look to an example of a country that has done it well and they've done it over a long time and sadly the response to this will be a long term project it's Canada and what (coughs) Canadian liberals have done there Um, And we need to make the unashamed case for immigration and nobody's been doing it. We need many more of us active in civil society to provide cover for politicians to be able to make that case because they feel unable to make those Mm. sorts of arguments. We need centrist politicians to stop saying that Brexit was a consequence of letting Romania and Bulgaria join the EU. Um, And and we need to, you know, Remainers are going to need to embrace social justice and and get with that to to, to begin fighting this down. I agree with all that. I'm not sure how that's going to play out in the places where this stuff is growing. I'm really concerned about it because it's more talk amongst people like ourselves. Well, Um, that's where Hope Not Hate do excellent work. Um, mm. And one of the members of OFUC, Our Future, Our Choice, one of Mm. the four founders, is doing doing exactly that. He's embarking on a a tour of um, uh, areas that have got big and growing uh, numbers of sort of far-right groups and is talking to them, um, you know, person to person, trying to break down some of that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there are good people doing this. And so that's 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 a plug to Hope not hate yeah. if any any listeners want to get involved well, in their work before we move on i had a bit of a revelation while watching the world cup i was thinking gosh it's great though you know the way that you know football hooliganism has really declined in recent years it's not there anymore yeah that's because it's moved into street violence it's moved into political street violence the football lads alive but, but hold on but has it i mean i don't think that there is a vast increase in in that kind of like i don't want us to worry about things that aren't actually taking place and i, I don't see a massive substantial increase in sort of racist street no. violence I, I just don't think that's happening Okay, no, yeah. I, I agree. Uh, I from Birmingham in the nineteen seventies. I remember a lot of the tensions <laughs> in certain parts of Brum. Uh, I live in part of London, which is uh, similarly cosmopolitan and uh, multicultural. I don't see the same sort of signs. I don't see the same sort of graffiti. I don't see the same sort of standoffs. So I, I'm, I'm with Ian on that. Okay. I, I don't see the street violence, but I do think there is everything else of that analysis is correct. It's, yeah. There's also, I mean, you, I think the, the Mason point that is worth worrying about is that idea of American money coming in for Tommy Robinson because they've noticed him now. He's there. You could see Bannon loved him, loved him much more than he liked Farage during yeah. all the stuff on LBC. So the chance of there being money that's followed in there could change things up. But at the minute, I don't think we need to be too concerned. Well, I'm sure we'll be, we'll definitely be revisiting this in, in weeks and months to come. We've been talking to him throughout the show. It's uh, our guest, David Allen Green, uh, the legal blogger known as Jack of Kent and a columnist on the law for the FT. You were talking about, like, May suing the EU. I well, wasn't. Oh, well, no, we came to a conversation. That was my unlearned friend, Mr Trump. Yeah, so uh, you had thoughts on this, David? Uh, well, as much as one can have thoughts about something which is thoughtless, uh, <laughs> it, a, a lot of people looked at that statement and then thought, oh, how could he sue? And there were some uh, people on Twitter, Steve Pears, Clive Coleman, who did some lovely analysis on what could be 
a legal case may could do. But there's no point searching for meaning when Trump says something like this. <laughs> it's, it's a grunt. <laughs> it, an animal behaviourist will point out that this is just an aggressive piece of behaviour mm. which is intended to have a certain effect. The words are meaningless. He could have said anything. What he thinks as a business person is if he threatens to sue somebody, he puts himself in a position of relative power. Trump very rarely sues people. He likes threatening to. And when he does threaten to it, what he's trying to do is to put people in a position where they surrender. Yeah. He does not like going into court. Because if you go into court as a business person, it is like a, a soldier going, a general going into battle. You lose control of what's happening. You're handing it over to another party. And, and most sensible business people don't ever want to go to court because you don't know what the outcome is. Hmm. But for certain type of businessman like Trump, making the aggressive grunt of I will see you in court is a way of just saying, I want to assert power over you so you do what I tell you. They actually said to the Supreme Court, I'll see you in court, didn't they? And they were like, yes. that, that's where we live. We, yeah, we're, always in, we're always in court. <laughs> Anytime you see us. Yeah, we're on this TV. This is where it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> there are ways, hypothetically, the UK could have challenged parts of the Brexit process. So it could have argued, for example, and Steve Pears makes this argument quite well, it's, it could have argued that the adoption of the very rigid guidelines which the council gave to the commission, which the commission then in turn stuck to quite rigidly, were too inflexible or didn't cover the amount of stuff or whatever. Ingenious probably wouldn't have worked because it was essentially a political operation rather than a legalistic one. There really was nothing which May could have done to litigate themselves into a better position. But say she could have done. Where? Which court? Would she have <laughs> done it in? Yeah. It would have been the very same European Court of Justice, which we are told we don't want interfering in, 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 in our affairs. Uh, of course, David Davis, before he became uh, Brexit minister was party to litigation before the European Court of Justice with Tom Watson to mm. assert privacy rights. He was relying on European Union law to challenge acts of parliament and government discretion. And as soon as he became Brexit secretary, he dropped all that and then became uh, against uh, yeah. European Union privacy law and whatever. You could do it, but it, it just made no sense. And trying to understand why... How the UK could have litigated this into a better position is to assign to Trump a seriousness he just hasn't got before. Mm. Don't look to legal commentators like me to explain what Trump means. Look to animal behaviourists. They will explain to you this aggressive behaviour. You have a slightly Attenborough-ish uh, style to your voice as well. Pardon? You have a slightly Attenborough-ish uh, tone to your voice as we see Trump moving through the forest <laughs> to assert himself. Oh, one of yeah. the great advantages I have is because I try and explain technical stuff, it always sounds so much better with a brummy accent. <laughs> Everything does. So you, you yourself, you consider yourself a Eurosceptic, don't you? You started out a Eurosceptic. I was. I, I was a Eurosceptic in the days of the... Uh, before it was Before it was cool. <laughs> In the days of the Bruch speech, uh, I, that was 1988, I was studying politics before I went to university. I was at university with Dan Hannan and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Louise Mensch and that, that, yeah. that group, when they were doing their campaign for an independent Britain and all that sort of stuff. I was research assistant to Bill Cash, MP, wow. <laughs> in 1989-90, just for a few weeks here and there. Uh, I have quite strong Eurosceptic credentials, if those credentials mean anything anymore. But Euroscepticism, yeah. for me, meant being sceptical yeah. of the direction of the European Union. Mm. It was essentially a reaction to what happened after about 1988-89. You had the Lord Cofield plan. Lord Cofield, in my mind, is the second most significant Tory politician of the 1980s, the father of the single market. That was being put in place by 1992. Had the European community, as it was then, more or less stayed at that position, I 
would have had no problem with it. Very few people who supported the single market would have had very few problems with it. But then, in 1992 onwards, you had the push at Maastricht, the three pillars, uh, an expansion of the competencies, and so on. And I personally thought, this isn't going to end well. This is going to lead to a situation where the UK is not going to sit very well with the new opinion. And had the UK left at that point, I think that would have been sensible. And people at the time sincerely were saying, we've got to stop it now because otherwise it will be too late. Same sort of people who then carried on saying the same thing for 20 years. But yeah. I actually believed it. I thought if mm. Maastricht passes, it's always going to be too much trouble than it's worth mm. to, to leave the European Union. Greenland left the European Economic Community in the mid-80s. One product, fish. Population smaller than Croydon. <laughs> it still took three years to extract itself from the European economic communities. For us to have taken not only economics and trade and fisheries and agriculture, but the uh, uh, additional competencies which were added at Maastricht and justice and home affairs and foreign policy and security cooperation, that's been in place for 20 years on top of where we were by 1992. And this whole idea that we can extract ourselves at speed is ridiculous. Yeah. And I just think it's just too much trouble than it's worth to do. Mm. Is that what brought you around to opposing Brexit? That, that Not so much a, a principled idea that it ought to be, you know, we ought to be at the heart of Europe, but did you say, we are where we are and we, you can't get there from here? Well, I, wasn't going to, I wasn't going to vote in the referendum because I loathe referendums. Referendums are part of a problem, not part of any solution. You shouldn't be encouraging them at all. <laughs> uh, so I wasn't going to vote and I was sitting back. I hardly wrote about the European Union before the week a few weeks before the referendum's out. And then I the Breaking Point poster and the atmosphere mm. around the time of the Joe Cox uh, yeah. murder. Mm. I just thought I couldn't be so uh, imperious just to go, oh, I'm not getting involved. I just mm. thought I anything, any leave vote which comes mm. out of this cannot go well because the atmosphere from which it was being born mm. was so poisonous. Mm. And so I, I voted, I voted, voted uh, remain, but at the last moment. Uh, and I wasn't actually going to get too involved in it. It was just a few weeks before the vote. I thought to myself, what would actually happen if Leave won? And nobody else had really thought through this through because everybody was assuming uh, yeah. that, that Remain would win. I didn't. I'm, but many, <laughs> many people did. Uh, Many people were just assuming it. And so I looked into it. I thought, what will happen? And I remember looking at the treaty and whatever. And at that time, I couldn't even remember sometimes which article it was. I kept on having to double check. Oh, yes, it's Article 50. Yeah. You know. And I did a piece for the FT. And I think I was one of the first mainstream media people to actually say, well, the referendum is not legally binding. And there would be a distinct step afterwards, which would be the Article 50 notification which is politically and legally separate. And I did all this. I wrote two articles for the FT. I was jeered at by some leavers saying, how oh, the FT are trying to uh, say that the referendum won't be legally binding. But no, I was just trying to explain the law yeah. and what difficulties would be. And then I thought, ah, I don't have to write about Brexit again. I, it's just completely... <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it'll just pass and whatever. And then I remember the day of the referendum result was coming through... And yes, a lot of people who I know and love were devastated and still devastated because it's going to perhaps adversely affect their lives, individual rights, residency rights. So me being slightly lighthearted about this, please forgive me. But I just thought, wow, this is fascinating. <laughs> because what I cover as a journalist, as much as I can, are messes. Yeah. I love covering messes. <laughs> and the European Union from a legal point of view, hadn't been messy for about 10 years, not since Lisbon. Yes, there had been the economic stuff in, in Greece, but I'm not an economics journalist. I'm a legal journalist. And so I covered things like legal aid, I covered things like LIBOR, I covered the Twitter joke trial, I covered all sorts of messes. Because I love things where you don't know what the outcome is. If you want impeccable black-letter journalism, legal journalism commentary, that is what Joshua Rosenberg is for. That is what Cole Gardner is for. That is what Adam Ragnar and Lucy Reed are for. I can't do that. I'm no good at it. <laughs> but what I do like is saying, ha this is a problem. And we don't know what's going to happen next. Let's see what could happen. <laughs> and it was as if 
my whole life up to that point was, ha, ah, this is brilliant. This is such a mess. And nobody has an idea how to solve this. And it isn't just one mess. It is a cluster of messes messing each other up. It was a sp- and because I, I, I can practice and advise on EU law, WT law, public procurement law, public law, commercial law, I know most of the legal areas anyway. And I just thought, Yes, everything in my life has just been <laughs> mere preparation. My clear. I love the way. I love the way when you recount the way you. Uh, I love the way you go full Kevin Turvey when recounting yeah. how you felt when, when, the, uh, when the result came in. Then it, it was wonderful. It really was. Uh, and I thought, okay, and I started writing about it, and I made some mistakes. I didn't think the government would be mad enough to make the Article Fifty notification. My ana- a lot of my analysis sound, still sounds because a lot of what's happened since is because I thought. No government would be mad enough to do this, but one was. And I accept that. I made one mistake. And one, uh, but everything else, I'm trying so hard to be based on what the evidence is and see mm. where it's going. Now, given mm. that you love messes and yeah. you are a chaotician, <laughs> and, chaotician. If, and you are absolutely in your element, what do you want to happen? What was, what's your ideal scenario? What's your ideal end point or at least intermediate end point for the particular mess we're in right now you've already described how you don't think we're giving anywhere near enough attention to what happens in transition and afterwards what would you if you had your magic brexit magic wand i would finish and publish the book i'm writing on brexit that would be that's great for you (laughs) what about the rest of us no that's something is my key objective uh and every time i think it's in final form then something else happens and i want to write an authoritative book Hmm. Uh, I want to write a book which is based on facts rather than just speculation or suggestions of what might or might not happen. I want to write something you look back on and say, yes, this is, you know, this is a solid piece of analysis. Uh, one of the things which has helped me in Brexit is because I am relatively impartial. I am not a lever in principle. I'm not a remainer in principle. Uh, and so it doesn't matter to me whether ultimately the UK is a member of the EU or not. And I don't allow feelings about that to approach me. I want to see something which works. I'm a practical lawyer. Mm. I want to see something which is feasible and is sustainable. I have a view, for what it is worth, that if the UK hadn't voted against uh, carrying on as a member in 2016, there may well have been another flashpoint which would have forced the UK to reconsider. Or, let's put it another way, had Remain won, there are... It is foreseeable to see circumstances where we would still be having the same sort of debate now uh, about whether we should stay or not. I think the best thing for the UK in the medium to long term would to have an association agreement where we have free trade and customs union and we have agencies and institutions and mechanisms in place to do the work which is currently done by our formal representation on each of the institutions like the Parliament and the Council and the ECJ where the UK can have its cake and eat it, so to speak, but also the European Union does. When the Brexit vote happened, I went to Brussels for a week, in, in just a few weeks afterwards, and I went round to various politicians and decision-makers and journalists, and this was before their ideas had settled. And what fascinates me in an interview is not what politicians say quickly, it's when they have to think of something they've not thought out before, because pat answers are boring. Yeah. Uh, and I went to all these leading politicians in the European Union and I said, OK, what do you want from the UK if you were to enter a new agreement with, with the UK? What would the European Union want if it was doing a deal with the UK? And the politicians and the officials said, well, if the UK wants access to our single market, then we will insist on freedom of movement. And I said, yes, yes, I can understand that quid pro quo. But what do you positively want from an agreement with the UK. If the UK had never been a member of the European Union and was approaching you for a relationship, what would you want from the UK? Hmm. Silence. Yeah. And eventually they said, oh yes, well, we'd want to have some sort of services relationship so with the city. But they really weren't that interested. And I think a lot of people in the EU would actually be quite happy if the UK was no longer formally involved in any of the institutions. Because it reacts as a break to things which otherwise could happen. They don't positively want us to be part of those institutions. And I did a joke once at the FT which went, went relatively viral. It was, the whole relationship of the UK and the EU can be summed up in a conversation. 1960s, can we join? 
None. Oh, go on, Ben. <laughs> okay. We want a single market. Here's a single market. We want expansion to the east. Here is expansion to the east. We went opt-outs on the social chapter. We went opt-outs on Schengen. We went opt-outs on the euro. We'd like a rebate. We'd like our rebate. Okay. Rebate. Blah, blah, blah. And the UK then says, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> it's... The EU have conditioned themselves. And with this withdrawal agreement, if you look at it from a lawyer's point of view... You will see there are all sorts of legal protections in there to give comfort to the European Union on finances, on the enforceability of contracts, on confidentiality of documents, all sorts of things. They've got their backs covered. That is why I think the European Union are willing to probably enter into slight compromises to, to get the withdrawal agreement, because they have got comfort. And so that, and once we're out... We are no longer a nuisance in the institutions. And we've been a very liberalising voice within mm-hmm. an, an, an actor. You know, yeah. uh, we, we have forced uh, the, the single market to be... Uh, us and, to an extent, the Netherlands have been the most sort of liberalising forces within the single market over the last Absolutely. decade. Single market is a great Tory achievement. It was probably the most lasting, most significant Tory achievement of the 80s. And we're just throwing it away. Hmm. Stranger things have happened and are happening before your very eyes. We are running out of time and it's pretty Sorry. Much... No, no, it's good stuff. It's, it's, good. it's an extended, long version of the show and very worthwhile, but I think we're coming up to what, all we've got time for, except, of course, for the Brexit time capsule. This is where we store the things that we will miss about the EU or the things we'll need if we leave the EU. All as a dreadful warning to future generations. It's a bit like that new that sarcophagus they found in Egypt that they're frightened to open. We say <laughs> open it because if you ever need something to come out and melt a load of Nazis, now is the time. <laughs> David Allen Green. <laughs> A.K.A. Jack of Kent, you're our guest. What would you put in the Brexit time capsule? Well, I was told by Ian that the to- Brexit time capsule was something from pre-Brexit which you would like to keep post-Brexit. Yes. And I would like to have David Davis's reputation <laughs> uh, for, uh, for uh, independent thought, uh, for championing Parliament, for insisting on using European law to force through fundamental human rights... I would love to have that back and be able to give that to future generations to admire. <laughs> you want old David Davis <laughs> before he went mad. I want, yeah, I want David Davis from before Brexit, and ah. I think that would be a great thing to be able to hand on to future generations. We can, and bear- I fear that is now lost. We can barely remember such a thing. <laughs> That's pretty much the end of the show. Here's our farewell clip in an exotic language for all you citizens of nowhere. It's the return of one of our rock and roll romaniacs. This is Peredo Ab Gwyneth from the drum and bass band Pendulum with a bit of Welsh. Before you go, it's been a real downer of a show this week and it's not our fault. So if you need cheering up, can I suggest you listen to the Joe Biden episode of our companion podcast, Anger Management with Nick Clegg. Biden is a man of incredible charisma and principle and he totally bowled me over when we were recording the show. Go on your favourite podcast platform and search for Anger Management with Nick Clegg. It will recharge your batteries. So thanks to our guest, David Allen Green. What are you predicting as the enormous thing that will happen between today, Wednesday, when we record, and Friday when the thing goes out? I'm scared to actually go back onto the streets of Soho after this. I'm, yeah. God knows what's happened during this particular uh, session. Yes. Wild creatures stuck in the streets. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you for coming on the show. Please do come on again. Thanks to Naomi and Ian, who I might be calling in the middle of the night for an emergency podcast if things continue. And and thanks to our producer, Sophie Black. Now, please stand for the Romaniac National Anthem. It's Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional roll call of our latest Patreon backers. It's thanks from me to Paul Hopwood, Gerard Kelly, Guy Evans and Umanath. Hello and thanks for your support to John Warwicker, Gerald Greenwood, Mark Rutherford and Mark Walker. And a big thank you from me to Marcus Spry, Adam Betts, John Jolliffe and Darren Morn. See you all again next week.